You're listening to, oh wait, no, I got to start over with like a bunch of like pizzazz and like, wow. And you know, Hey, you're listening to Coding Box 187 because you know, I can't, can't do it the same. You know, I got to like trip it up, you know, spice it up. Right. I think, you know, (laughs) thank you. Thank you for recognizing. So, uh, yep. This is Coding Blocks. That's our new intro. Yep. This is Coding Blocks. Here we are. No, this is 187. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and forget it. <laughs> <laughs> Wherever you can. Hey, and while you're forgetting it, go ahead and visit us at codyblocks.net. Ah, forget it. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, well, <laughs> or, uh, if, you're, if you haven't uh, if you haven't unsubscribed and left yet, uh, you can find us on web5 at codingblocks.net. Uh, follow us on Twitter uh, at codingblocks. And uh, yeah, we've got a bunch of social uh, dillies at the top of the page. Uh, I'm Joe Zach. I'm Michael Outlaw. And I'm Alan Underwood. All right. So what are we talking about here? So uh, we are talking about the book, uh, Site Reliability Engineering, that we've... Ooh, I said it almost right. All right. Almost. <laughs> almost. Uh, the book we've been talking about for a while. We're talking about Chapter 7 tonight, The Evolution of Automation at Google. Now, we skipped a chapter uh, earlier in the book that was kind of focused on Google, but we decided to go ahead with this one because we thought uh, it had a lot of just kind of good general stuff about automation and uh, some interesting uh, case studies, which, you know, I'm typically lukewarm on, but I liked here. Uh, so, we'll, we'll see how far we get tonight, but uh, I'm pumped. I like it. Yep. So uh, from iTunes, we'd like to say thank you to everybody who left us a review. So from iTunes, we have a sobering. Um, Rupushbendi? Rupushbend, I would think. Oh, that's probably better. I like the way you said it better. I'm going to pretend I said it that way. Uh, (laughs) Membrane, Angry Little Hamster, and John Smith, 1982. And Membrane. I do too. Oh, was this supposed to be? Yeah, okay. M and M brain. I was, I was thinking like membrane, but like you know, uh, like where there'd be like a silent M in the beginning of the word or something. You know, oh, the way he, the, with the way he spelled oh. it. Yeah, that's what that's what made me think of it. But monic. Yeah, M and M brain that works too. Yep. Um, so say that name again, Alan. Rupesh. Rupesh. Bindi. Okay, so Rupesh asked. Uh, along with his, his comment, like, how do you find the time along with your day jobs to, and hobbies to, to keep doing this and everything? I mean, I, we do this to study. <laughs> I, at least that's the way I kind of view part of it. You know, like, I mean, this, this definitely over the years has been, uh, a great vehicle to, to force me to continue learning on uh, topics that I might have not bothered to dive into. I will say, um, so for me, uh, I, I still get a, like a fair bit of just kind of couch coding time. And my trick there is to just code on things that I'm excited about and that I'm having fun with. And as soon as it stops being fun, I quit. Uh, that's not a great way to get projects done, but it is a nice way to just enjoy life and also learn some things along at the same time. Uh, so I am uh, fond of doing fun projects and, uh, doing it when I feel like it. But what does that have to do with coding box? Cause he was asking how we have time, find time to f- do coding box. Oh, you, is yeah. coding blocks your fun? I, for some reason, I read this is programming along with your day job at hobbies. Yeah. <laughs> no. So, yeah. I'm going to just make up another learn. question and answer that one randomly. Yeah. <laughs> yep. 
Well, along those lines, I just let these guys study it and then I just show up for the show, right? Like that's, go. that's pretty much it. No, and, I, and I just like to call out Joe on the things he says. Yeah. No, I mean, I'd say the same thing Outlaw said though. I mean, for real, this is, this is kind of the way that, that we study, but you know, ironically, a lot of times, you know, we, we'll pick subjects that we feel will positively impact the things that we're doing in our day to days too. Right. So, so it's a good way for us to learn and share at the same time. We also get feedback, right? Like we've had amazing people like um, Merle who will hit us up and be like, Hey, you know, here's some additional context to what you're talking about. So, you know, we study for this and then we share, and then we also get killer feedback from our Slack group, um, from people just emailing us or, or adding us somewhere like it. So, yeah, I mean, and, and that's the other thing. And I know that we say it when we're when we're begging for reviews and all that stuff, but it truly is like I know for me, anytime I get someone that's like, Hey man, you guys don't even realize, but you've you've changed my life, right? Or or you've made things so much better or I'm happier with what I'm doing now. Like that kind of stuff is so motivational that that it makes it to where it's exciting. Cause there are times like I mean, we could all attest to it. There are times like, man, we gotta crank out another episode. <laughs> and Man, that means we got to study and we got to get show notes done. And, th- and there are just times when you're busy with work and everything. You're like, I don't want to do this, man. <laughs> like, I really don't want to do this. But, but when you get, I don't feel like that like, ever, Joe. Do you? Like, man, you it's just Alan, right? Yeah. You just gonna leave me hanging? That's good. Yeah. <laughs> so I will say, you know, like, um, when I've gotten this question before, my my first answer is typically having good partners. Because if I was doing this by myself, just like you said with the, like the couch programming. I quit as soon as it got you know tough or you know the first time I got tired I just would have backed away. But when you've got other people that you're kind of involved with, it makes it easier to kind of you know show up and and uh, do a poor job, which is what I usually do. <laughs> uh, no, you know the other okay. thing that does help too, and it's funny coming from me because if you ever saw my inbox, I know we've talked about inbox zero on here, which I think is insanity. Um, like my inbox is a search box; it's got you know hundreds of thousands of emails in it having a schedule like we do, like we typically have a night that we try and record on knowing that that's coming up definitely helps, right? Like it's like knowing that you have a test coming and and you've got to prep for it. Remember in the first year though, when we didn't, Oh man, (laughs) Hey, can we get together tonight? Nah, man, I got things to do tonight. What about tomorrow night? Nah, I got things to do tomorrow night too. One month. We might only get an episode out. (laughs) Oh yeah. Oh yeah. There were times when it'd be like six weeks or whatever. Yeah. Next month so we're good. like, here's three episodes. Yeah. Maybe we should slide back to that. That was kind of good, yeah. wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't, They're all bangers. I wasn't going no, I wasn't like, you know, going down memory lane trying to like encourage <laughs> bad habits again. We we have moved on from that uh, for a good uh, reason. Dang it. I like bad habits. Yeah, me too. But I think so, there have definitely been some so, like I think that the community and you guys like there have definitely been some books that like, for example, or, or topics that like I might not have found or gone after on my own, but because, you know, either one of you or somebody in the community said like, Hey, what about this? And I'm like, Oh yeah. Or even topics that we, we do already, you know, like use or like we think we know. And then somebody will be like, Hey, have you ever thought about doing a, a, episode on this and then like we'll do a deep dive on that thing and it'll be like oh okay that's why that was like that you know i mean there this has this has been a way to i i view it as a way to 
stay engaged in my career and to continue learning and like just kind of like advancing myself. You know what that does that make sense? To like to keep myself relevant in this ever changing world of technology. Like why didn't I not just become a plumber where everything stays the same? Right. You know, (laughs) and you make a good amount of money doing it too. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, there's so many other jobs out there that like that you can make seriously good money and the things don't change, you know, but, uh, I don't think you've talked me into it. So we're going to do an episode every six weeks and I'm going to be a plumber. We're good. (laughs) That's it. Real estate. You know I mean? Like that it's, Uh, it's the same. You're just selling stuff. Like it's, but yeah, I, I decided to change. I decided yeah. to go for this one. So, yeah, I mean that. So, I mean, I don't know if I, if I, if we answered Rupesh's question, but, uh, yeah, I mean, this, this is part of the, I kind of view it as like part of the job, you know? So, yep. so with that, um, this isn't a survey, but we ask, why do we automate things? <laughs> Right, yeah. So uh, diving into chapter seven, uh, all about uh, uh, the evolution of automation in Google. They start off just by kind of uh, looking at the basically the reasons why you would uh, automate things, and these are all kind of obvious things. But it's kind of nice to just split it up a little bit to make sure we're all kind of on the same page. The first one is kind of obviously uh, it's consistency. So people make mistakes, you know, even on simple tasks, maybe even especially on simple tasks, especially if you have to do that simple task uh, a million times. Like how many times you uh, brush your teeth and realize you're using the wrong end of the brush? You know, something I do, I don't know, once a month or so. For real? <laughs> no. <laughs> Wait, I, I don't know that you're lying I like, about I that. like that Joe trolled Alan and Alan totally <laughs> fell for it and he's still not convinced <laughs> Well, what's it say about me that it's believable that I get a brush with the wrong Well, I was thinking like I was thinking like a more a, a better example is like um, how many times have you just like misspelled common words, right? Like, I mean, oh yeah, that that's <laughs> that's a simple Today. simple task, you know. Like you're typing in an email with just you know the language you speak every day, and for some of us, it might be the only language we know, and yep. we still yeah. like mess it up. Yeah, well, I try to not even type variables at all. Copy paste them and like outlaw bust me today on uh, like having somehow dropped a letter on a, a word. It's just crazy. Yeah, crazy. you know, you know, it's insane that they brought up here, and I actually remember this from from working at a college campus. Is they brought up like school campuses and whatnot, how they typically have people that manually do a bunch of steps all the time, right? Like a new person comes in. Uh, I need you to set up this account. I need you to log into this. I need you to do that. I need you to install this, right? It's a bunch of manual things and somebody's going to miss something along the way, right? There's just too many things. And so the consistency really is key. I think more than even some of the other ones that come up here. Yeah. You know, there was, um, there reminds me of a story. So, um, one time I was working at a company and have filled out the, uh, the paperwork, you know, when you start the company and one of the things you had to fill out was the, the match, for um for four hundred one k or not the match sorry but how much of your your paycheck you wanted to put into four hundred one k which is like a uh, American thing for basically retirement savings and I typed in a number and got my first check and it was wrong I was like that's I was like doing the math so I contacted HR and like, I put this number in and it looks like this number's coming out and they're like oh yeah I must have typed it wrong I'm like wait what yeah huh. right. I typed it into the form. What do you mean you typed? Like, oh no, you type stuff into the form. 
Then I get an email with everything you typed, and then I go type it into all these other systems, and so I must have missed somewhere. And that was just amazing to me that uh, there was someone actually going through for you know for doing that and basically doing data entry and HR in like a modern day company, you know. But and you know the insane yeah. part is that was probably several years ago. Um, I remember just a handful of years ago through a very popular HR company that was out there that did the same thing. You'd type yeah. in stuff and behind the scenes, they had a bunch of people going into other systems and entering it into the other system. So they were selling a platform that they integrated with a bunch of other things. The reality was you'd fill stuff out through a nice front end. And then they had a bunch of people going out and, and logging into the other systems, setting things yeah. up. And so you'd have mistakes all the time. I bet we're talking about the same company. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. They had a really like nice website. I was like, no, oh, this is the best HR experience I've ever had. And then meanwhile, I can't, was it called, uh, does it have a Z or something? Are you going to, you going to throw, Oh, I wasn't going to throw them under, but I remember I had a similar thing though. (laughs) Because, and I remember, I remember too, uh, it did, did. (laughs) but not, not to beat up on them though, specifically. But I mean, I remember I ran into a similar thing related to, uh, you know, setting up like your, your insurance options. And part of the reason that, that they said that they did have it, as a person entering it in is because like all of these different systems that they were like quote integrating with, <laughs> you know, not all of the options were the same or supported across. And so that's why they didn't have anything automated on their end. But I don't know, like that seems whatever. Yeah. I'm not going to like, you know, judge your business, but definitely if there's anything that we've learned through this this journey on coding boxes that like whatever you can do to re- do things in a repeatable way, the better you are. Right. Especially like, like, you know, as, as our CICD type conversations, which is where this like automation kind of comes from and, and specifically the consistency, right. Is coming from is like the more things that you can do in a repeatable fashion, then, you know, and, and repeatable having a person type something in is not something repeatable. It's a task. It's it could even be toil. It might not be, but it's definitely not. It should not be considered repeatable, even if they do the same thing three times in a row. Yep. So I think anyone who's written software that's been used by people know that consistency is a you know a nice dream. Um, now the next one is not as obvious. Uh, at least it wasn't to me. The reason that Google says they automate things is because they're building a platform, and automation begets automation, which means basically. Uh, you can extend and grow and fix bugs in and combine automated tasks into bigger and bigger automated tasks. And so uh, it's kind of like the idea of like um, almost like starting a garden or something, you know, uh, the idea being that the work that you do to automate things uh, pays dividends. Every time you run that automation or that automation gets run, you're saving time that you would have had a person doing that. So it's providing value as opposed to somebody going through and doing something manually, which is literally a cost center and uh, also has the you know higher chance of going wrong and costing you more money to kind of fix it. I mean, we have a, you know, a recent example of that in our day job where like we automated a, uh, you know, a, one of our processes and, and, you know, somebody on the team bothered to do like some back of the napkin math and came up with like, here's, here's like a ridiculous amount of money that was saved per month just because we don't have to have an engineer go and do that task manually that was being done for a while. Like somebody would, you know, go and do, uh, 
you know, like a build and deploy kind of operation of some code, uh, you know, out to a specific environment. And, and now they didn't have to do that. And, you know, so to your point, like you, there can definitely be like real savings in, in doing these things. Yeah, totally. And uh, centralizing is important too. So that back to this notion of platform, this, this notion of platform comes up over and over again throughout this whole chapter. Uh, platform centralizes the logic too. So you think about kind of having one centralized kind of code base or with, uh, you know, automations, your configurations all in one spot. So you don't have to jump around to computers or go ask someone how to do something. You've got it all in one, say, you know, repository or one centralized location doesn't necessarily have to be one repo or anything, but, uh, basically a centralized kind of, I don't know, uh, was a nucleus of control. <laughs> I don't know. Well, that, uh, that's what they called it. out here, right? Like if there's a problem in that centralized system that's doing things, that's one place you got to fix it, right? And then it fixes it for everything as opposed to if you have a bunch of people out there doing things and yeah. you find out that you had a bug in your in the process to onboard somebody, right? Yep. You now got to go tell everybody that does any onboarding like, hey, um, don't do this thing here. And it just it doesn't scale well when you're dealing with people or or anything like that, right? So yep. if you have a centralized system, not only does it make it easier to do, but it also makes it easier to fix things. Yeah, totally. And things drift. You imagine if like uh, there's some tasks that everyone does and everyone does those a little bit differently. Like Alan's got a script, uh, Alan's got a different script, and I uh, was too lazy to do a script, but maybe I found some way that kind of shortcut something. So I, you know, I just reset it or something every uh, a couple hours. Um, but it, and then all of a sudden you figure something out wrong, you know, with the process and say, okay, we all need to do this, uh, additional step somewhere in the middle. Then you've got to communicate that to all these different people. They need to figure out how to integrate with the processes that they're already doing and adapt. And it's just painful. Uh, but it's centralized. You fix it in one spot and you're done. Uh, also, uh, if you've got a platform, uh, and then you start doing these things more and more often, the more you do it, you start getting kind of like economies of scales, uh, scale. So you can, um, start getting metrics and using these measurements to make better informed decisions about, you know, things kind of going forward and how you want to spend your time and resources. Uh, and uh, kind of tying into that faster repairs is the idea that uh, the more often uh, automation runs, you hit the same problems with it. So you imagine uh, you've got a task that runs a thousand times a day. It's going to run into network problems or it's going to run into you know timeouts or it, it's just going to have things go wrong in it compilation if you're errors a, compilation errors <laughs> if you're running it a thousand times a day uh you know after one month two months two years four years uh you're going to see a lot of the same problems over and over again and you're going to figure out uh you know how to solve those problems quickly either by scripting around it or just you know having some kind of manual fix but the idea is that the more often you run it, the more often you hit the problems, the faster you get at repairing it. So over time, the uh, average cost of fixing those errors drifts down lower, lower, lower until it basically gets as low as it possibly can go. Well, and also, too, like w what my experience has been, like what I've seen happen is that like w the things that you start fixing, the improvements you start making, they start becoming more and more like granular as you get, like in the beginning, it might be like the compilation errors, right? Like you're just trying to get the thing to build right in, in a consistent and repeatable pattern. And then, you know, you might have that as part of your PR process. Like it's automatically kicked in and eventually like, it'll get to the point of like, you know, Oh, the, Hey, there's these network timeouts. Maybe we should use something else as a, as a proxy, uh, you know, to cat like an artifactory or something to cache external dependencies so that we can kind of like, 
reduce our 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 dependency on the external internet, you know, or connectivity to it. And then it might be like, Hey, you know what? These build times, like let's improve these build times and get those like, you know, I mean, two minutes was okay, but you know, Hey, what if we were able to cache a bunch of things and you get it two seconds? And like you, you just start making like these improvements over time, you know, to where like, that's not the thing that you, you know, you didn't start with trying to get your build time down to two seconds, but eventually you were able to, to iterate to that point to where now because your automation keeps getting mature and the things that you work on, the the improvements that you're making, like what becomes a problem today, you know, is so much more minute than what was a problem yesterday. Right. And and so like that, that's one of the uh, advantages to like setting these, these things up. Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. Um, And I'm using build as a, sorry, but I'm using build, but obviously like, you know, Google isn't necessarily only talking about building things. Yeah. You know, I was just using that as an example. Yeah, totally. And I think, I think it's a really good example. And we'll we'll get into, they have an interesting, uh, I don't know if I want to see the, um, I don't know if I want to say definition of the word automation, but they have an interesting take on automation. Uh, where they say, um, I'm sure this is somewhere up, up ahead in the notes. It's going to trip me up later, but, um, they say that they think of as auto- automation as being software for controlling software. Obviously there's, you know, automation that does stuff in the real world too, but it was just kind of like a kind of cool take where we've been thinking about like automation as being these things that kind of like sit outside their systems and like orchestrate them. Um, thought that was pretty cool. Uh, faster action. So obviously, there are things that a computer can do much faster than a human. You know, there's only so fast that you can kind of click buttons or enter commands or run scripts. And if you've got a, a or wake computer, up in the middle of the night to create a new pod, exactly. Yeah, can you imagine if? Yeah, can you imagine you if Kubernetes worked that way? Like every time yeah. it needed to auto scale, it would be like, "Hey, let me uh, page Joe or yeah. Alan and see get one of them to to create the new pod for me." Yeah, what's the turnaround time on that? But I mean, so that's that the, that's an example of like I'm taking being kind of extreme, but you know, in faster action, it doesn't necessarily need to be that you couldn't like click the button fast enough. It's just you might not a person. I'm sorry, Alan, a human might not even be available, <laughs> you know, in a reasonable amount of time, especially like in off hours. Yeah, and another good point there is that uh, there are things that as you scale would be prohibitively, prohibitively expensive to just have a, a human sitting there doing. So, uh, you know, maybe when you've got, uh, you know, a hundred different, uh, servers running or, you know, uh, you've got one data center running, you can have a, a team of people that can manage that. When you get to a hundred data centers, you just cannot hire enough people and kind of keep that many people active and solve that problem. You have to automate. Otherwise you just can't do it. You can't grow to that size because you can't scale people that well. Hey, one thing that they actually called out along those lines, and it might have been further in the chapter, I can't remember either, but um, they said, you know, a lot of these things that they talk about here are specific to Google and the fact that Google has these scale issues, right? Like if you work at a small company that's got four or five people on a developer team, chances are you handle a, a lot of that stuff manually because you sort of can, right? But they've grown to a point to where they can't. They just, they couldn't hire enough people to do all that. And it wouldn't even be cost effective to do that. Right. So there's definitely this, you've got to keep in mind that there's a scale of a company like Google or an Amazon or a Microsoft or whatever that may not match for a small company, but it doesn't mean you couldn't get these same type benefits. If you started pushing for some of that automation 
in your smaller company, right? Like how awesome would it be if when your boss asked for a build, you didn't have to go in there and do something yourself to get a build out and get it over to him. What if there was a push button, you know, package and, and ship type thing. So, um, you know, they call it out and it is worth knowing that, you know, they are aware that they are sort of special because they have a lot of huge systems. Yeah, and I think um originally I, I thought about maybe we should skip this chapter for the show or whatever because it's so Google centric. But part of what I thought was so fascinating about uh, the idea of this kind of platform is that it seems like Google thinks of themselves as a platform. You know, like Google is a platform. Google is building and investing in these systems not just for their search and their Gmail and their you know, all their other products. But also their HR systems, their employee systems, their ability to kind of spin up clusters and sell Google Cloud. All like, if you think about it that way, it's like they really think about this almost as like kind of investing in themselves. Like they want to own the source code for their business, and that's not just the products; it's also the business itself. And I think that's a really cool idea. Yeah, and what they even called that out explicitly, like you're talking about. One of the reasons why they said that they like investing in building their own software is because when you buy off the shelf products or, or whatever, they don't have the APIs and things built in that allow them to get the visibility into how the thing's running, right? Like the metrics that we mentioned or, or APIs to see how things are running or, or getting data out of it. Like they want it because they know because they've done it so well for so long now, they know what they need out of that software to know if it's running effectively and doing what it needs to be doing and all that. So it, it was a really interesting take from their perspective on why they prefer to build versus buy. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was really good. And if you think about it, like, you know, if you're a company that large, like why would you want to buy something that you're not going to be able to integrate with the other systems? So why buy these black boxes? Like you really need to be able to kind of own that stuff. And that's, that's something as a large company, again, like you, like you said, like um, you have to think about things differently than if you're a scrappy startup. Right. Yeah. I mean, if your core competency as a small startup is to sell widgets, everything you do needs to be geared towards getting those widgets sold. Right. Yep. Um, you can't be investing in writing your own logging library or your own metrics gathering library. Like, there's reasons those tools are out there and you should leverage them. Right. Um, yep. but when yeah, Google, platform, I'm sure runs their own SMTP servers, you know, they run their own exactly. mail servers. Yeah, they, totally. they run, you know, millions of billions of emails through every day. If you're a startup, you should not be trying to, to run your own mail server. It seems email. like we've, it seems like though, like, I don't know if it was from a book or, or where, but it seems like we've ran across something at some point where it was like, you know, you should use the tools, that are available, whether you like they're commonly available or you had to buy them or whatever. And until you grow big enough to where, you know, it no longer meets your needs. Right. right? So yeah. if, if using like Alan mentioned a logging library, so like if using a log for J is good enough to get you going, like focus on your core business until that thing becomes no longer, you know, doesn't do it for, doesn't do what you need it to do. And now, you know, there's some kind of business need why you need to change it or whatever. Or even like, you know, you mentioned, um, as it relates to like, uh, using other services for like, you know, HRs or whatnot, you know, um, yeah, I mean, focus on, focus on what your core business, the problems are at that time until it, until you outgrow it. But I don't remember where we came up with, where that came from. 
I remember hearing that too at some point in the past, but I couldn't, I couldn't tell you. I'm going to go ahead and credit it with Uncle Bob because it's probably in like one of the Uncle Bob books. <laughs> probably. That sounds like something he would say. Uh, yeah. Uh, so last item here is time saving. And when they talk about time saving, uh, we already mentioned how, you know, it's faster to action, uh, or faster to actually do these automations than faster than human doing it. It's faster to fix. But when they say time, time saving, they're actually talking about like the human cost, meaning, um, if something's automated, uh, then can just be run by a simple script and anyone on the team can do it. We don't have to find the specialized expert who has the knowledge and maybe the shell script in their home directory or whatever, right? So the cost to, uh, or the time to actually do this thing is really fast. It's whoever gets to it first or whoever gets the page and, you know, we've got it. Uh, as a, you know, opposed to kind of having to scramble whenever there's a problem. So just a kind of different take on saving time there. It's interesting. But they also called out, right? That, that in order to get those time savings, you have to invest the time in creating whatever it is that will do that. Right. So if, if you have something that takes away 15 minutes from a person every day, it might take you a day to automate that. So there'll be a payback period before that thing breaks even and ultimately ends up paying for itself over time. Right. But you've got to bite the bullet and, and get that, you know, get, get somebody working on the problem to get it done. Imagine if you had to manually take time out of your day. QA comes up to you, they tap you on the shoulder, tap, tap, tap. Hey, I want to test this version of the code. And you're like, oh, let me go check out that specific version of the code. I'll compile it. I'll build it. Okay. And now I'll go deploy it for you somewhere. And there you go. There's your, there's your thing, right? Versus if you've actually like automated all of that, and then they can just click a button and away they go. Right. Right. I mean, that, that's, you know, clear example of this time saving idea where like now anybody and it doesn't even have to be QA in this case, it could be like a salesman who who wants to like be able to demo the latest thing to a, a potential customer, right? Or or any like, you know, C level executives that want to be able to show shareholders or board or whatever, like, hey, here's the thing, right? Now you've like literally automated the thing to where anybody can do it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we have a, a fun little quote that relates to that. Uh, outlaw, you want to try reading this? <clears throat> okay. If we are engineering processes and solutions that are not automatable, we continue having to staff humans to maintain the system. If we have to staff humans to do the work, we are feeding the machines with the blood, sweat, and tears of human beings. Think the matrix with less special effects in more pissed off system administrators. Yeah. So it's kind of a funny idea of like the humans kind of powering this machines and powering this process, uh, which is kind of the reverse of what you want to be doing with computers, right? You have computers to, to replace the, the human need to do those repetitive tasks. So yeah. It's kind and of that quote that. was from Joseph Baronis. Yep. Yeah. I'm so, I wasn't going to be able to pronounce that name. So <laughs> I, you literally, did so well with the I reading. literally didn't say the name because I was like, oh, I'm going to butcher this name. And I was going <laughs> yeah. to call out. I was going to make a joke to call out to have you say the name. Alan. So you saved me that embarrassment. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, no, I don't Dang think it, it happened that way. Yeah. I didn't save yeah. the embarrassment at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nice. Uh, and the next section was um, they had a couple paragraphs on the value of SRE at Google. And this is all stuff that we've already kind of hit on. Like Google has a strong bias for automation because of their scale. Google is a massive company. Do we know how many developers they have? Um, Employees? Just like, I think it's nine because they've automated everything. That's so, right. um, 
<laughs> Wouldn't it be like super crazy if it was like a much smaller number than you expected? Like what if it was like, you know, they have 57 developers around the world. I have a number a from last year. Do yeah. I want to take a guess? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to say it's, it's going to be a strong five digit number would be my guess of developers. Not in, not all employees, right? Software engineers. All right, Software so engineers. What strong five digit mean? <laughs> That's very vague, sir. <laughs> um, I'm probably going to be like super low, but I'm, I'm going to say twenty five thousand. Wow, wow, that okay. was really high. No, no, you were real close. Yeah, that's good. Twenty seven thousand. The number you're seeing. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Now, yep. how many employees do they have? That's the number I looked at. One hundred and fifty thousand. Yeah, I remember. I remember for the longest time. Uh, IBM was like one of the largest uh, employers because they were, I think, like around 150. But then there was like a there was a a German company I can't remember that made like medical equipment, and they were closer to 300,000. Um, wow. So, yeah, that's a few. Yeah, yeah, it's just a few, just a couple people. So yeah, Sorry, I was just reading. So there. Yeah. So Google's core is software, right? I mean, that just makes sense if you if you've read if you've even spent any five seconds learning anything about Google, you could know that it was about software and, and creating software. So they don't want to use software. They where this is kind of what we've said before, where they don't own the code and they don't want processes in place that aren't automated. You can't scale tribal knowledge. So, and that's the worst thing, by the way, like you, have you ever been that person that knows something and like you get hammered, like everybody will keep coming to you for like that thing. And it's like, why don't you just write it down or automate it or do something like here? I never want to talk about this thing again. Right. I think we even referenced something similar to like, um, I think it was Scott Hanselman that like every time somebody would ask him a question, he would never respond by email. He would just write a blog article and then that way, if a second person ever asked him the same question, he could just be like, there you go. Go away, It's kid. brilliant. Yeah, I mean, that's brilliant. Um, Think about, like, with 150,000 employees, like, how often people are getting locked out of their accounts or needing to create a new account or quitting, transferring, changing their 401k, you know, contribution rates. Uh, I mean, that would, like, how many employees would they just be dedicated to doing that? You know, it's crazy. Uh, I had a friend who worked uh, for, like, kind of a hospital complex, like a couple of local hospitals. And a lot of his job was like resetting passwords and stuff because there were like nurses and doctors on the floor that don't want to be filling in the passwords. So they needed to be able to call a number quickly and have someone kind of do that. Um, but there was a pretty large staff for, you know, a couple hundred employees. And that's all they did all, you know, all day long was to kind of deal with like sysadmin type stuff like that. And, uh, yeah, that doesn't, it doesn't scale very well. I mean, business it. it doesn't even have to be at Google scale. Just imagine like you're having like, uh, Thanksgiving or Christmas where all of the family and extended family are coming over to your house for the holidays. Right. And immediately everybody comes in and like, Hey, what's the Wi-Fi password? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't you, you just go. like to have something just like automated, like boom, they came in and like, okay. And you, you now have the credential. You're good. As long as you're in there's radius and then boom, you're out, you're gone. Yeah. You're off my network. So the last little bit that they have here on, on Google's value of the SRE is, Google wants to invest in platforms, right? Because when they build those platforms, then they're things that they can improve and extend over time. 
And that goes back to them not wanting to use other people's software, right? Because they have an idea of where they need the software to be in it, sort of its end state because they've been doing it for so long. So, yep. but really, it makes of, sense. in the grand scheme of things, they haven't really been doing it quote that long. I mean, yeah. Google's I mean, only been around since like what the late nineties. I mean, you're crazy. talking to, you're talking about the heyday of all development though, right? Since, since like software yeah. development well, became as huge my, as it has been. But my point is, is like, they're not as old as like an IBM or totally. an AT&T or, you know, whatever. Right. Yeah. Like even an HBO, for example, you know, like they're older. And then you have this like new kid on the block called Netflix. And it's like, Hey, let me show you something. <laughs> right. So, yeah. So, uh, I guess we got somewhat, you know, last time, uh, it worked. Uh, it pains, it worked. Me, it pains me, Joe. It pains me. It, that's what, that's what it kills me because I, I <laughs> dread what worked. you're going to, what you're going to say, but I'm going to ask you to do the bag for the reviews, but I'm probably going to regret it. But then when the next episode comes in, like people are going to make me like, not regret it. And then that, I feel like that's worse because it only like feeds the, it only encourages the bad behavior. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. So here we go. All right. I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm just going to, I'm going to shoot straight here. Uh, I don't trust imagine- that. That's already off to a bad start. You're lying already. <laughs> <laughs> but Whenever I got a great Joe match. tells you something like that, you just know. It's going to be great. Like, wait for it. <laughs> imagine we're a bunch of vampires. Right. Okay. But instead of like needing blood, we need reviews to live. <laughs> right. Way better than blood. Right. We can all agree. Uh, and we even try to make it easy for you. So if you want to feed the vampires, <laughs> we set up a URL, uh, coinbox.net uh, slash view. And even if it's a terrible review, it's still pretty good. See? That's where you like, you took it too far. You were oh, doing okay. So you're fine with vampires. It was weird. I'm not going to lie. It was weird. But I was like, okay, yep. he's got this analogy. It's kind of, it's weird, but it's working. And then it's like, then you, then you took it off the cliff. And then he sucked the life right out of it. Yeah. Yeah. I've been watching a lot of Twilight lately. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I thought you were kind of sparkling. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, man. All right. So uh, how about, how about we start off with a joke? How about that? Let's, let's do what what do you call a group of programmers? I don't know. An assembly. Oh, nice, nice. That's pretty good. That's, That's pretty, pretty good, good, right? Yeah. Oh, so I saw the survey that's coming up. Jim Jim <laughs> Hummelstein, he sent us the uh this link. I'll have this in the show notes, but it's the hey. ultimate list of programmer jokes and puns. Another funny. So yeah, we'll have it. Thank in you, Jim. Excellent. Thank you. Yeah. All right, one last one. How you know how to? Bleh, bleh, bleh. You know how a hacker escapes the FBI? No. Uh, backslash FBI. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I like it. There's gonna be more of them in there. It's a good list. I'm telling you, this is this is there's some true gold in here. Um, but so now we head into my favorite portion of the show. Survey says. All right, so a few episodes back, we asked, so I mean, we're talking about this whole Google SRA thing, right? So so wait a minute. 
DevOps is a culture, but SRE is a title? And your choices were, wait, what? Or, yeah, I get it. Or, eh. <laughs> All right, so uh, this is a odd number episode. So according to Tateka's trademark rules of engagement, Alan, you are first. So I'm just going to go with the fact that I think every oh man this the, this is amazing this goes along with something Micro G shared with me with uh, optimism pessimism and and whatever but at any rate I'm going to go with most developers are pessimistic and I'm going to say meh and we're going to go fifty percent <laughs> meh fifty percent okay Joe right away Joe before you say anything. I mean, Mathematician, <laughs> like this is already in your favor. Like I think, from a mathematician point of view, you're, I, I, I have faith that you can pull this off. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I feel like he's giving you hints, man. That's not fair. Yeah, so I got this. No, I wasn't. I, that totally wasn't a hint. <laughs> yeah, I get it. I'm just saying it's more than two, so you know. It's a, I get it. No, I mean that's my answer. Is yeah, I get it. Oh, <laughs> 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 and it's for the percentage. Uh, Alan did 50. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm going to go with, uh, I'm going to go with 90. Bold. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Spicy. Mm-hmm. He failed. So the hint didn't work. I tried to help you there, man. I tried. <laughs> There's a hint. I tried. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So Alan says, meh, with 50%. And Joe says, yeah, I get it. 90%. Alan wins. Oh. But he overshot, so he lost. Oh, dog yeah. on it. Yeah. Really? Yeah, it, it was, it was, meh, was 40% of the vote. Oh, that's wow. Yeah. It was close, though. All right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I get it. It was second, 32%. So, you know, okay. uh, there's hope. Fair enough. There's hope in there. So, yeah. How about if I ask you this then? Uh, what do you call two monkeys who share an Amazon account? Prime apes, yeah. Prime, yes. Prime apes. That's it. Prime mates. Yep. Prime mates. Oh, okay. Mates. Prime apes. Prime apes. Well, instead of a primate, because a monkey would be a primate. Yeah. Well. Yeah. True. So prime. Uh, I, I like the additional pun on top mates. of primates. I do apes. too. I think yeah. Joe's answer is better. I like it. We're he wins. Fine request. then. What is a th- <laughs> PR? Yeah, that's right. Okay, so a thesaurus is the only dinosaur that can read. What does a thesaurus eat for breakfast? I don't know. A cinnamon roll. All right. So for this episode survey, we ask synonym. Oh man! Got it, got it. So for man, that one took longer than expected. It sounded Uh, like you said cinnamon roll, but maybe that's what I was trying to hear. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I did. Okay, sounds good. I'm sorry. Um. All right. Well, then for this survey, I ask or we ask, what's your, you know, because there's this new Tom. Everybody's making a big deal about this new Top Gun movie, right? I don't know if you've heard, but there's a new Top Gun movie. So everybody's making a big to-do about it, right? So we ask, what's your favorite Tom Cruise movie? And your choices are Mission, probably something, something, or 
top secret gun or risky company or edge of today or majority report or rainy men or Tom and Jerry Maguire or a few. Okay. People or interview with a dead guy. These hurt so bad. Oh, it hurts so bad. It, it's so hard to choose just one of those delicious titles. <laughs> well, you know, like uh, some of those, some of those, like I, I think like, I was putting this together. I think I might do this for like all of them from now on. Like they might all be silly stuff like this. Cause this one I had fun just trying to like put together the, the titles, but like the Tom and Jerry Maguire. <laughs> That was like among my favorites on there, especially since it's Tom Cruise. So it had like an extra little oomph to it, you know? Ah, yeah. But then uh, also Top Secret Gun made me feel a little sad because that was like, you know, one of Val Kilmer's first movies, if not his first movie, Top Secret. So, man. And they were both in Top Gun. So, yeah. I did like it that you had an interview with a dead guy in here after Joe's take on the review as well. It kind of fit, right? Right. I thought, I thought that that's where that came from when, when he was talking, I don't know. Did I, did I influence your review there with that? Did you cheat? No, I just play a lot of video games. Oh, right. Okay. (laughs) That makes sense. That checks out. All right. Well, a lot of novels, I think is what it is. Let's keep talking about uh, automation and specifically Google's use cases for automation. Yeah, so uh, much of Google's automation is uh, around managing the life cycles of systems, not actually the data, which um, I guess is kind of obvious, but it was just kind of interesting to think that they have the distinction. We talked about how they kind of view view automation as uh i think i jumped ahead to the spot where they, they kind of think of it as being uh software for software as like meta software uh they did mention a couple tools that they use including chef uh puppet which if you're not familiar with uh, i think of those as um kind of centralized tools that uh, like manage things like installations and kind of i've seen it for desktop software i'm sure it's you know all sorts of stuff it's like uh, kubernetes but for like things that you can go poke at like it's another way of like building autom- of like defining how you would install a system, right? Except, yeah, it's not a Docker file. It's like a real machine that's there. So I, I, I give you an example. So the, um, I know when we've used, we've seen Chef for Puppet. I always get like they're kind of similar, but um, what I've seen in the past, it would be do things like every uh every workstation that comes up needs to have a security client installed and the certificates installed needs to be running this version of windows and and uh, but it, same thing works for servers though so you could like spin up a data center maybe and say like uh every data center needs to have or, you know early every dns server needs to have these things and every load balancer needs to have this stuff or uh it, it can kind of go crazy and, and uh just kind of gives you ways to basically manage uh these kind of more complicated distributed systems you know and can reach like really far out you know like i mentioned workstations and um like load balancers and stuff like things like into the real world like i wouldn't be surprised if there's somebody out there running a farm with like chef or puppet real world that's that's a good way of saying like into reaching out into the real world that's what i meant by like you go poke at it it wasn't just something like a container running on your machine or you know a kubernetes cluster full of mini containers 
Uh, totally. Um, CF Engine, which is something I've not heard of before, but uh, it's basically looks like for um, change management. And wait so for it. it looks pretty cool. Here it comes. Best one, Pearl. <laughs> Specifically mentioned Pearl. So obviously these are tools that kind of work at different levels of abstractions. Like Chef, maybe you'll have a you know recipe or whatever they call it um, that defines like a data center uh, or uh, you know uh, a, some sort of storage block or whatever. Um, Pearl is going to be something that you're going to do for different kinds of things, you know, different kinds of tasks, like much smaller things. Uh, but it's like writing your websites Blue. in Pearl. Hey, people do it. <laughs> they certainly used to do it a lot. It used to be super popular. I know it's crazy. Uh, I mean, it's not crazy. It's like it's perfectly fine and it did a great job. It's just it's kind of fallen out of favor. Uh, well, that's why I found like you know consider because I think the date of this book was twenty sixteen. Is that yeah. right? And and Pearl still made. It, it's way into this book at 2016, which yep. was, I, would, I think it's fair to say that Pearl had fallen out of favor of mainstream by 2016. Oh, well, for you, sure. Well, you know what they said about it though, was it has like access to like low level system type things. And that's, that's why, right? Like all the other ones were sort of higher level abstractions. And they said Pearl got you down to dealing with system level APIs. And so you had more finer grain control, but that comes at a cost, right? That's that's basically what they were getting at. I mean, they could have picked any language though for that. It's yeah, they could have gone C point. or anything. Yeah. yeah. At that point. But I guess Pearl's more scripty, right? So it's a little bit easier to deal with, I guess. So I don't know. Yeah, so I was just looking up. So yeah, confirmed twenty sixteen. Uh, some of the authors, like uh, or some of the people thanked in the dimensions, were all like SREs until 2013. So you know the you know just because we the book came out in 2016, it was going on uh, before that. Yeah, that they uh, moved on to something else. You mean? Yep. But uh, the, just the fact that they were a SRE in 2013, you know, before the world has heard that term, was interesting. Oh, right. Uh, interesting to me. Uh, so, uh, you know, we mentioned Perl being a very low-level tool. You can do a lot of things at a very granular system level. Uh, you can literally write to standard out and, you know, things like that. Um, Higher-level abstractions, like things like Chef or Puppet, are easier to work with and reason about, but they're leaky. Uh, so, like, when we talk about Kubernetes, like, it's a – I guess I would call it a high-level tool. Uh, but there's a lot of stuff that goes on underneath and there's a lot of layers of interaction before you get to something actually running on a VM somewhere and uh, getting traffic started. Like the way you, the, the concepts you talk about, the, the terms that you use are just pretty far away from like what's actually happening on your cloud provider of choice or on prem or, you know, wherever you're running it. Um, and, you know, high level abstractions are great because they're easy to work with, reason about, and, you know, you can, uh, same with um, programming languages, like the higher level it is, the more stuff you could be, the more expressive the languages are, you can do more with less, but they're leaky. So things that c- can go wrong include like a partial failure, a partial rollback or a timeout where you're not sure if the thing happened or not. And so the higher level the tool is, uh, the less it's able to handle like, these little kind of intermittent, intermittent props because it doesn't know what you want to do. If it is a partial failure, you know, what do you want to do about it? Like the, the kind of further back, the less you have to do to kind of set have, stuff up and get it to run. It's basically like saying another, another way of saying it is that like you have, when you get to higher levels of abstraction, then you have less control. 
Yes. And the yes. reason you have less control is because it is a higher level of abstraction. So there are cases where like, you know, there could be something very specific, low level that happens. Like it failed to open a socket and you're not going to be able to know. You might not be able to catch that at the top level, you know, whatever you're working in. Uh, you know, so you're, you know, you, you don't know why it failed or just that it failed or, you know, kind yep. of thing like that type of thing. But what's weird about that is typically when you hear um, a leaky abstraction, that, that usually means that it's abstracted, but it's giving you a lot of visibility into the yeah. the layer that it's touching. And their example that they mentioned here doesn't really doesn't follow that. So I don't really know what they meant by the leaky abstraction, but they did give an example of like, let's say that you had something that was doing a rollout and it was supposed to be pushing binaries out to, to a bunch of different clusters, right. Or whatever. And things could fail in different parts of that binary being pushed out. Like maybe the binary didn't make it to a system. Maybe it did make it to a system and it didn't stop, stop the old one and start the new one. Or maybe it did get there and it did run. So, so, they were basically saying these higher level abstractions have problems and that they may not be able to deal with things that happen further downstream because they're not even aware that they happened. Right. Because they expect things to happen in a particular way, right? Like release the binary, restart the thing. And if something happens somewhere in between there, then it's not going to know about it. But again, that's why their term leaky abstraction is sort of confusing here. Yeah. Cause normally you would think of it as like, you know, you're going to have a, like a, an interface for like how to create a user, but that generic interface that could like go to any number of providers also has something very specific to like one or more yes. of those providers. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Like you're actually leaking details of how you, right. how the underlying yeah. implementation is, is working. And I don't want people to know that yeah, or so- care about it. Yeah, and that's that's where the leaky abstraction, at least when it comes to code and stuff, is how that's communicated. But it sounds like all they're saying here is your lower level stuff like Perl, awesome because you can do things, but it's more complicated. Your higher level abstractions are great until they're not, right? And and that's kind of the trade off you run all the time with layers of abstraction, right? So, yep, so it's like a script that calls a script that calls a script that calls a script, and something goes wrong there. And then somehow it's got to bubble that information up to a, a spot where, you know, someone can make an informed decision about what to do. But the the options and it, just everything that might need to – all the information you need to to have in order to kind of fix that are not necessarily present in the machine. So I think of that that is kind of being almost like the leak. That's where things kind of go wrong. And uh, you, you've got to actually get in there and kind of diagnose it and look at logs and do whatever you need to do uh, to get past it. Uh, I got a couple examples here of uh, automation. Um, so, uh, account creation termination—that's something we talked about. Uh, cluster set da- set up and shut down. So, um, when they say cluster here, they think about like just a group of computers. You know, you know, I mentioned like DNS, load balancers, things like that. Um, uh, you know, authorization servers, whatever, um, certificate issuers, uh, software install and removal. Uh, kind of mentioned that too with the security agents, that sort of thing. Chef, um, it. Yep, yeah. this is definitely what I think of there. Uh, software upgrades, so not only your software, but also system upgrades. So you want to upgrade uh, your Linux kernel or something like that. Windows, uh, Windows uh, configuration changes, like you're making some networking changes or something. You know, um, changing your DNS you know, servers around. Uh, dependency changes. Now, this is one where um, it's this is a little bit trickier because it's um, 
something that your system depends on change, but maybe, maybe your code hasn't changed, but, uh, there was a, a patch deployed that fixes some security vulnerability or something. So you need to not only look at the things that you have told your systems to deploy, but also the things that they're built on. So imagine like, um, I don't know, the log for J, uh, um, CVE, whatever, uh, vulnerability that had a couple months ago. Now, uh, you have to know as a system administrator that your, which of your systems are running code that's vulnerable to it. And that may not be the code that you ran, but the, the framework that it runs in the other libraries that it brings in the company blog that is you know running somewhere uh if any of those dependencies need to be upgraded and it's going to have cascading effect speaking of like i remember you, you you've heard about like where github has um capabilities like um where they will in your repos they'll find like hey you have this dependency on blah blah that dependency has these bugs blah blah, blah. And I think I recently heard something. Tell me if you guys heard about this too, where like Google is now going out after like projects and they're finding, you know, like, Hey, this project has this bug, but also like, here's the PR. Does that sound? Yeah, you guys, weird. Did you guys hear about that? I'll see no, if I can find it. I hadn't it. heard about the bug. I knew about with dependencies, like uh, they started creating PRs and stuff for uh, upgrading software. I think I've even had it happen. You know what's interesting about this list that you had here? Like, you just rattled off about seven or eight of them. But they also said this list could just basically go on and on forever, right? Ad like, finitum. Yeah, because yeah. any anything that you can think of that they could possibly automate, they will try to, right? I found it. Uh, um, Google announced this is the beginning of last month. So, or, well, basically about a month ago. Um, Google announced that they were creating what they called the open source maintenance crew tasked with improving the security of critical open source projects. That's pretty cool, right? I mean, it's kind of off topic to what you're talking about, but what yeah. made me think about it though, was just the dependency changes though. Like, uh, because now Google's doing it, Google scale. And they're like, Hey, it's not enough <laughs> that we do this for us. We got to do yeah, it for your everybody. stuff too. Yeah, but I right. mean, the reality though, is that like how interdependent, the world is on open source now, yep. you know, so it's not, I, I, I suspect it's not entirely altruistic that they're doing it. Like they, they benefit from it too because they, yeah. you know, they use a lot of open source as well. So, yep. you know, it only, it helps them to be more secure too. So, but you know, related to the configuration changes, the example I was thinking of there was like, <clears throat> I mean, nowadays, Especially with like Sarbane, Sarbane, you know what I'm saying? Sarbane's Oxley. Yeah. Um, there's like uh, controls where like you'd probably want to have like, you know, specific credentials for auditing systems, you know, here and there. But, you know, you can think back to a time not in the not too distant past where like you might have had like a password for, you know, some credential like, oh, hey, here's the DB reader password. Here's the DB writer password. Right. That that multiple systems might have been. Uh, using and you know if you wanted to like roll the password occasionally uh you know depending on how many systems you had that could be a big deal right so you know that rolling passwords was kind of an example of like uh a configuration change that i was thinking of that you know automate that as much as you can right even though there are like i know there there's like other uh services out there to where like you know the the those secrets could be shared you know 
and, and retrieved as needed. Yeah. Totes. Totes. Uh, is that what we're, is that how we talk now, Joe? That's where we're at. Yeah. That's, that's what the vampires say. Okay. Well, yeah. Yeah. I am the youngest. So to say. <laughs> hey, wait, are you? You are. I think you yeah. are. Yeah. It's, I mean, I look it. <laughs> right. Wait a minute. I you thought still, I was the youngest. You still got hair. Clearly. For sure. Yeah. 21 still. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. That's right. <laughs> All right. So, uh, the final section we're going to cover tonight, uh, it's a hierarchy of automation classes. And this is, uh, the idea here that there's kind of a maturity model. We've talked about this with security. We've talked about this a few different times. It's kind of a repeating pattern in, in kind of technology and probably just the universe. But uh, the idea is that ideally you wouldn't need to stitch any systems together because they would all kind of just handle their own problems and they would all uh, have APIs and, uh, you know, components that work together and were designed to work together with all these different systems and everything would just be perfect and you wouldn't have to do anything ever. Uh, but uh, that's not the real world we live in. We have systems that are separate and we have a bunch of uh, glue code and that glue code is especially um susceptible to bit rot. So basically, you know, one of the systems upgrades, maybe it removes some old uh, options, adds some new ones and changes some things, how, you know, how it does. And so your glue code is now maybe out of sync. And then your other system that you're gluing to, maybe it's got other, you know, configurations and things and options added. Now it's kind of out of sync with that original system and the way your glue code works doesn't really apply anymore. And those things kind of drift over time. And so the, the problems might be kind of subtle and it's really hard to, to know and it's expensive to go in there and kind of test this glue could you ever had code where you're like you did something that integrated two systems like three years ago and now you got to go figure out why it's not working anymore and you like don't remember anything about it and then you look at the apis now and they're like totally different and the the api you're using was apparently deprecated like three years ago it's you can't get a key again sorry outlaw i was gonna uh, it's funny you mentioned that because i thought i think we talked about that as an example in a past episode where like the Slack uh, changed how they uh, create their uh, tokens. You know, they're completely different now and, you know, from one to the next. So yeah, I, I definitely am yep. facing that. Yeah. And even when Slack changed our APIs and so the, the plugin we used to let people uh, join automatically oh, uh, stopped working one day. Yeah. There's another one. Yeah. And didn't even know until people started uh, not being able to get in, but we do have that up uh, by the way, if you go to codingblocks.net slash Slack can, uh, and you can join. Uh, so I mentioned those maturity levels. Uh, so the idea here is kind of that the more rare and risky a task is, the cheaper it is to basically to deal with, the less likely it is to be fully automated. So in this example, we'll uh, talk about a database failover, which we've talked about in prior episodes as being something that a lot of times a human is involved in because of all the different things that go wrong and the severity of kind of how bad you can munge your data if things don't go well. Uh, database rollovers are kind of a, uh, or, or, sorry, failovers are kind of a famously difficult problem. And a lot of databases are specifically written around the, the kind of goal to make that a little bit easier. Like we mentioned, uh, Cassandra. Well, I was thinking like not all, not all database systems are created the same. So could you imagine like failing over multi-region in like, you know, going back to like, like a cloud example, like multi-region yes. failovers, like, you know, especially like it's, some of those problems are okay in like an active active kind of situation, you know, or not even active active, just like the other thing is available. Right. So you have like the hot, the hot region and then the standby region. But you know, if your strategy is 
I'll spin up the other region on an as needed basis, yeah. you know, like automating that would be pretty, you know, pretty tough, but you know, and there might be like legit cost reasons why you only want to spin up your, your other region on an as need basis. So yeah, totally. I can't imagine why you would take the time. It's rare and yeah. there's a truckload of risk in it. And so even if you did go through the expense of trying to automate that process today, well, things might change in a year when you actually need it to happen. And so are you still going to trust that the automation is going to work or would you still want a person there like checking that as it went? Right. So yeah, I mean, yeah. that's an example that comes to mind. Yeah, totally. Me. So that first level is basically no automation. Just like you said, like, you know, if you, you've got a site making $150 profit a month, uh, you're probably not going to spend three months, you know, practicing and setting up the database failover, you know, automation because it's just not worth it. It's probably never even going to happen uh, at that scale. Uh, second level is what they call externally maintained system specific automations. So what we're talking about here is that a, a SRE, a developer, has a couple commands that they can run and they basically got some information on the notes or maybe they saved a stack over a full link. And so, um, you know, maybe they've got a shell script, their home directory, something like that. The idea is that it's externally maintained, which means it's the person who is who did not write the system. Uh, so in this case, you know, a developer at our company is supporting a database that is from some other vendor uh, and they're maintaining it. And they're just, you know, keeping it to themselves and they can, they can run it if you need to. And that's kind of the second level. Uh, next one up, uh, externally maintained. So remember, this is us running it, not the database vendor. Generic, but still system specific automation. Only difference is here, uh, that SRE adds that script to a playbook or throws it in the wiki or checks it in somewhere. And so now anyone can run it. So it's an evolution in that now anyone can run this thing, but it's still uh, externally maintained. This is much better than having no automation for a failover. Right? If I like started a new company and saw they had a script for failing over databases, I would think it's something that they're probably pretty good at and that they've done a few times. And you know, I'd have a lot more confident in that confidence in that script than I would me googling my way through a manual <laughs> failover. Right? So that's pretty good. But here's where things start getting even better. What I'd like even more than having some uh, wiki with the script for failing over would be if the uh, the database itself shipped with a script that will let you do it. And so you could go shell no box and run database failover and that's it. So now there's nothing, spe no special you know knowledge. It's responsible for doing that stuff. It's presumably been tested, you know, by a whole bunch of people. That's the trick. Is it's 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 continuously tested and maintained as part of the product, not like yeah. in that first example that I gave, where like, you know, you do it a year later. Yeah, and this is the experts, so, and you know, you've probably got some sort of support contract. And this also assumes though that like now the like the the rarity is is probably becoming less right yeah and that's oh, why you bothered to automate it in the first place and now like that automation is just maturing as you go and we're kind of getting into bot territory so you know if you're buying it you know into a database or something like if i'm paying for a ten thousand dollar a month license for uh you know microsoft sql server they better have some tools for me to fail over uh you know because I'm I'm paying good money, so I'm sure like the the more expensive database solutions like this, these are the things that they're able to add on and kind of get their value add uh, over like you know other ones. 
Well, uh, well, worth calling out though is sure on like paid for databases, but but Google here is even talking about their own things, right? Like so, yeah. So this this could be that they're building in failover scripts into their own thing, right? Like uh, what is it, SQL Spanner and that kind of stuff, right? Like they they probably have things that they've built into their own product to handle their own failovers as time goes on. So it could be a paid for off the shelf thing or something that you're doing yourself that you're, that you're baking into your own product. Yep. Are you ever seeing like a woodworking equipment or something? that has got like a, an emergency pull cord or something that, you know, so it's like if your shirt gets stuck in the saw, pull this cord real fast and it'll shut the engine off. That's kind of what these scripts are. And you're glad that that's there. Still pretty scary though. Right. Kind of quick, man. Like, yeah. You're in a violent you know, mood. There could be a problem that you have to do something very important. We provided that important thing for you, but it still doesn't really make you feel great about using the product, right? Right. Well, yeah. Along those same that same line of thought, though, have you seen the the blades or the the saws where it will automatically stop? As that's what like, so as yep, soon that's as the it, next one. Yeah, that's that, exact. Yeah, I I don't know that I could ever like. I'm glad it's there. I'm glad it's a thing. Like I, I, I look forward to the day that it becomes so commonplace that like every saw, every circular saw you ever want to buy is just has that. It's not even something you think of as a feature anymore. But oh my, I don't know that I want to trust it. Yeah, yeah. And if you don't know what he's talking about, just Google or go to YouTube and search for table saw with um, blade stop. And they'll show people like running a hot dog. And as soon as the blade makes contact with the thing, it'll barely nick that hot dog, but it'll destroy the actual innards of the table saw to keep it from cutting a finger off. Yeah. Basically, it's, it's, yeah, it basically it's like injects a, uh, a thing, a break into the blade. The center of the blade can like, uh, break up as it does it. it. And it works off of like, um, it, it, sets like a, a current it trips like a current signal uh-huh. huh. like w- when it touches that other thing you know like the hot dog example or you know yep. your finger and and yeah to alan's point like it barely puts a a dent on your on the hot dog or your finger but you look at like how fast that thing is engaging because it's literally like shooting a gun to like fire a a, a, a like a pen to to break that uh, saw blade and it is ridiculously quick. Would either of you stick your finger in there to test it out? No, mm-hmm. no, <laughs> yeah, me neither. Yeah, mm-hmm. nope. Yeah, so all right, yeah, well, no, because it would be my luck that it would be like you know, my long flowing locks would get caught in it instead, right, yeah. and so like my skin would never touch it, but you know, my, my heavy metal long hair would get yeah. caught in it and it would like totally uh rip you know, all, all the hair off my head. Yeah, definitely. Could you, are you picturing me now with like long flowing locks, you know, like that? Yeah, Goldilocks. Yeah. yeah. about that Fabio furl. <laughs> Jeez, I would hate for that to, ah. to get damaged. Yeah. Be like a uh, Channing Tatum in that, in that, in Lost City, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see that. That was, I, I did enjoy that movie actually. So, uh, the last one here, like I took us way off tangent, but basically, <laughs> You know, the example with the blade that I was describing is this last point that the system doesn't need automation. The database notices and automatically fails over. Yeah. But isn't that automation? Like, how is that yeah. not automation? 
Uh, it yeah, is. definitely automation, but there's something about it being kind of owned. So, you know, example here would be like the, the blades you mentioned or like anti-lock brakes or you ever see pressure washers, like anything dealing with electricity and water. A lot of times they'll have a, a self-shutoff switch, so they'll throw a breaker if uh, the energy starts moving too quickly or whatever, gets overloaded. Uh, so I feel much better about those systems because I never have to think about it, you know. Um, it just kind of take care of it and it doesn't scare you, you know, it doesn't come with that script that you know that one day you might have to run, so don't forget about it. Um, so yeah, it's just that's the kind of the ultimate dream is that your system doesn't need automation and also that all your systems are going to work together. None of it's going to need anything. It's just going to take care of itself. Self Self-correcting. Yep. And you, you kind of, that's kind of, I think, the promise of the cloud. So when you uh, use a managed service, you know, something like uh, S3 or whatever, uh, that's kind of idea is like, you don't need to worry about the automation. You don't need to worry about the data centers. Like your stuff is up there. You've got this many nines for it. And, you know, you're kind of delegating that part to them. And that's huge. It's huge. There's a big difference between number four and number five here. Yeah. I mean, it kind of goes back to like the beginning of, the, our discussion of this book where there was the quote that I, I'm probably going to, you know, mess it up, but it was something about like, they didn't want, um, you know, what was it? They didn't want automate. They, they wanted not automation, but self-correcting or something like that. Like, I don't remember now, but you, do you know the phrase I'm talking about? Yeah. We, we looked this up last Dang episode it. too. Oh, well, no, did we didn't we? remember. We but forget they, it they every didn't episode. want uh, <laughs> automation. They wanted like, autonomous systems or something self-correcting like systems yeah. like something like that yeah like yep yeah or can, they didn't want continuously deploy oh, man it i gotta go it. look it up but uh so the gist is like think about the difference just just how you feel about the statement do you uh think about the difference between seat belts and cars and having cars that can't ever crash you know, that's the difference between number four and five here that we're talking about. It's a huge leap from, yep. you know, a script in my home directory to a script in the wiki. You know, that's much smaller uh, conceptually and much easier to get to than it is to go from number four to number five here. Yep. Oh, and then they, you have one last one here. Oop, go ahead. They want systems that are automatic, not just okay. automated. Yeah, that's what it was. Dang it. That's a great quote. I wish we could just remember it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I won't even bother to put it in the notes. We'll remember it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, no, Scott, one last thing. And, uh, so we're breaking before we get into any sort of case studies or anything, but this is kind of a theme that they, um, kind of come back to a little bit in, in some of the kind of case studies. And so I thought it was an interesting question to ask here. Um, uh, can you imagine a scenario where your company, or your group automates so much, that the devs are un- unable to actually manually support something when a real uh, non-automated problem actually occurs. And do we mean that because the dev doesn't have experience with it or because things are just so complex that you couldn't possibly hope to do it? I would say a, a mix of so complex and also you're just so far away from that. It's like the difference – like if you think about like me using it as like a computer user, if uh, Photoshop crashes or something – I restarted. Like I'm not about to go diving into system calls and like trying to debug. Like I, you know, I'm probably not even going to look for a log file or anything because I'm so far from that. Or even better, like if I pick up, um, uh, or here, oh, I got one. Uh, I push, <laughs> uh, uh, I push the button on a toaster right to toast the bread, and 
there's no power. Like the things that I'm going to do to fix that are very limited. Right. Uh, because, you know, ultimately if I trace the problem back to the power station, like what am I going to do as a human? Like what I'm saying is like you can get so far away from the, the problems that you can have that you're just unable to fix it. If my toaster died tomorrow, I wouldn't be able to fix it. You know, well, I was thinking like cloud storage providers, be it Apple, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, whoever, uh, you know, they can't, if you, if you can no longer read your file or delete, you know, uh, read a line from your file, they can't help you with it anymore. Right. Like they don't have that engineer doesn't have access to it. Right. They can't see it in the raw to like help you. You know, I've been struggling with how to say this. Um, do you ever hear that story about the guy who tried to make a toaster from scratch? That's why I use toaster. Mm. Uh, a guy got this yeah. idea. He's like, I'm going to make, I'm going to smelt the metal. I'm going to smelt the copper. I'm going to make the wire. I'm going to coat it in a, a you know, non-conductive material. And I'm going to make a toaster from scratch. And he actually went and like mined the material. It took like, I forget how long, like 10 years or something. And uh, it actually ended up catching fires in the museum. It's like a famous story. I'll find out like, with shout outs. <laughs> But uh, it was just the idea that you're so far away from things like just basic things that you don't even think about. Like imagine if you uh, got dropped in the desert somewhere and uh, your phone got smashed by a rock when you fell. You can't fix that phone, right? You're so far away. It's so complicated. It's so the tools that you need to even work on your phone to fix it. It's not practical. It's not something that you in your lifetime could build up the tools to have. So what I'm saying is like, it, can you be so far away from the underlying building blocks of your systems that if the, when they do go wrong, you like can't really fix it. And you just have to hope it works when you restart it. I think I mean, that would be a good thing to shoot for, because if you get to that point, then you've done such a good job of insulating yourself from all that. Like, I think that, well, <sighs> here's the example. Yeah. Here's the example. Um, first of all, I want to answer your desert question. I would just die because yeah, I wouldn't even go. know which direction to go. My phone is the compass. Like, how would I even yeah. know? Like, what? Where's north? Where, yeah. What are you gonna do? You just gotta die. Yeah, you just That's die. Right. Just follow. No one, north. no one ever lives in a desert. That's just fact, <laughs> right? Pretty sure you can, you can, you can check my math on that. But I'm pretty sure I saw it happen in Spaceballs. Um, so I think no, no, they only combed it. They did comb the so <laughs> so uh. But but to your automation question though, here here's the better analogy though. Cars. It used to be that like the average person could just like buy a car and maintain it. But now they've gotten so crazy that like it it's unrealistic to expect you and I to be able to maintain a common car. Now, and that was before we even got into electrics. Now with the electric vehicles, it's it's you know, there's even an extra step there because now uh, you know, you might not even have access to the actual software that's being used to run that car, right? Mm-hmm. So you, I mean, I mean, this isn't exactly, I don't think what you you were talking about, but this is the closest example to a real world that I could think of. It was like, you know, you you don't, you no longer have the ability to maintain that thing yourself when yeah. when things go wrong. It's difficult, you know, a random light comes on, you're like, well, I don't know which sensor that was. You can go yeah. buy, you can go buy a reader to tell you what sensor it is. But even if you knew what sensor it, that is, that doesn't necessarily mean that you easily have access to even get to that sensor. Cause it might, you know, where it's physically located within the car, you'd be like, Oh, forget it. I can't. Yep. I would, I would have to disassemble like half the car and that would just take me like, you know, 
the rest of my year just to disassemble it. And then I'd be like, okay, now where was that baggie of screws that I had? (laughs) 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 Knowing that you kicked over the plate that the screws were on. That's why. Yeah. yeah. They're everywhere. That's why you eventually, I just put them all into a bag. You're like, I'll figure it out. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, and so uh, WordPress is an example. Uh, whenever that we have a problem with like a WordPress, it's something that I know if I put the time in, I could learn more about how it works and how to kind of diagnose it. But it's so much easier just to restart the the service, and you know, it usually is fine. Um, but uh, it's kind of an example. You can imagine like a a company that doesn't need any developers. They've got a WordPress blog or something with a Shopify plugin. That's how they make all their money. If that goes down, they don't have the skill set to to maintain it or to fix it, but they were, they've been reaping the benefits of, from the automation, you know, like they're able to run a successful business with no, no it staff at all. Um, but when they're, when they're in trouble, they're in trouble. Right. When you were going on about your, the toaster example though, where <laughs> I, that. no, 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 I didn't mean that in a bad way. Uh, where I thought you were going with that was similar to the story of, and I know Alan, I bet has heard of this one. Have you heard about the guy who built the Lamborghini in his basement? No. <laughs> he spent No, Alan, surprise me. No. There was a guy who spent 17 years building an a Lamborghini in his basement and then decided he wanted to sell it. <laughs> and if I remember the story correctly, he had to like have a wall of his house taken out in order to get the car out of the basement. Like that's just I mean, hey, kudos. The guy built like a 1980 Euro spec <laughs> Lamborghini Countach LP5000S. Like it was everything, you know, real tail lights, everything. Like it was awesome. And if you saw the pictures of it, you're like, that is incredible. But yeah, I don't know why he didn't like think ahead. <laughs> and it's like, you know, if I build this car in the basement, I'm going to want to get out. Let's say, like, let me build an airplane in my dining room. <laughs> That's insane. <laughs> Absolutely. But, but yeah. yeah, so we'll we'll dive into more about uh, kind of automations and like we'll we'll hear some stories that are kind of similar to uh, kind of remember what, what you just uh, said about the airplane in Lamborghini. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll we'll dive into that uh, a little bit next uh, next episode. Yeah, and so with that. Uh, you all have a bunch of resources, links to resources we like, uh, you know, in this episode, especially the Lamborghini one so that Alan can catch up on his reading. And, uh, uh, with that, we head into Alan's favorite portion of the show. It's the tip of the week. All right. So I've been doing some development again lately, which is nice. Kind of nice. Um, and I ran into something that was extremely frustrating. So, uh, I'm using spring in Kotlin slash Java spring boot. And, and I was using the spring Mongo JPA, whatever it is. I, I don't know. It's something special. Um, but here's the deal. Like, go look it we, up kids. The, the <laughs> spring Java JPL, some special, you know, whatever. Yes. Yes. So <laughs> here's the deal, man. Like we've talked about spring is I, I'm I'm convinced. I think I said this to somebody the other day. I'm convinced that if you actually knew Spring inside and out, you could write an application faster than anybody else could in any other language. You you totally could because it does so much for you. However, if you don't know a lot about the Spring framework, you'll spend ten times as much time writing it because you've got to figure out how things are supposed to work. At any rate, 
I had something that was using Mongo templates in spring to do some database calls and I wasn't getting data back. And I was like, well, what in the world, right? Like this, this is magically going off and doing something. And apparently you guys know how like in SQL server, they sort of have a history table so you can see what queries ran. You can even go find out the performance of the queries that ran. Like there, there are specific queries and procs and stuff that you can run in SQL server to find what the last 10 queries were or whatever. Mongo doesn't keep track of that stuff. Um, now I did read that there's maybe a version of Mongo or an enterprise version to where you can get some auditing turned on and it will write that stuff out somewhere. But by default, from what I understood, Mongo does not do this. Now I'm probably going to get 9 million comments. If you know differently than what I read, please feel free to share it on this episode's um, uh, discussion, uh, which would be codingblocks.net slash episode 187. But so with all that out of the way, I needed to see the query that was running because I wasn't getting anything back. There is a setting for spring that you can just put in your application.properties. If that's what you're using, it might be application.yaml, whatever. You know, one of your 50 ways of configuring spring, you can set this logging.level.org.springframework.data.mongo to be.core.mongo template equal debug. Just rolls right will, off the tongue. It does, right? Right. <clears throat> it will actually output the queries that are being sent over to Mongo. Which I is, didn't catch that the first time. Could you repeat that? No, I can't. I ran setting? out of spit. My spit track. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna have we're gonna have this in the show notes. So you're like, well, I didn't. Let me rewind. It, don't worry. It's in the yeah, show notes. It's in the show notes. But the cool part is when you turn this on, then literally every time a Mongo statement or a Mongo query is made using Mongo template, then it would output that to your debug logs. And you could actually see it. And for me, I got to see that I was using the wrong database name. I was apparently substituting in the collection name for the database name, and thus it was never coming back. So having that one piece of visibility saved me hours of frustration and rewriting code that was never going to work, right? So um, there you go. So Spring almost automated you out of the way to being able to manually support the system. I was hoping it would (laughs) have. It almost that was did. the goal. That was the goal. Yeah. So that was my yeah, bonus points. Um, have we ever talked about actuators? On I don't show? think we have. No. Yeah. So here's a fun little tip. Um, so actuators are a spring concept of, uh, basically it's a, a suite of configurable and extendable, uh, APIs that you can add to your spring application that let you actually, uh, control things about the spring application. Like, for example, changing the, uh, debug level live without having to do a reload. So if you actually wanted to turn on, uh, debug logging for Mongo template and you have, uh, the actu- actuator, uh, enabled for logging, for example, then you can actually go hit that rest endpoint and say, Hey, something set it to debug, do your thing and then turn it back off again without doing any sort of deployment or anything, which is really nice in some cases, but not something uh, you're going to want to expose to your customers. Probably it's not, uh, you're going to want to keep even, those actuators locked up somehow. Yeah. Regardless of who, uh, uh, where it's deployed to or who, who has access to it, you probably don't want it for everything. Cause there's probably gonna be some security minded things like yeah, even with totally. the, the Mongo uh, example of like, outputting the queries i was thinking like there might be some things in those queries that you don't want persisted out to a log so this is this is for local development type stuff and also the the actuators so one other thing to tack on to it they're amazing if you are running a web service or something with the web um 
API, right? Because I tried to turn this on for a uh, a console application, and because there was no web endpoint for this thing, it didn't exist. Um, so this is perfect if you're setting up a web service or if you have a website or something like that. Um, but if you have those, this is an amazing way to be able to do do changes on the fly without having to restart your system and all that. Yeah, that's also how they do like uh, health checks and a few other things like that are just kind of nice little meta things about Apple. Spring is so nice. It, man, I swear to you, especially Spring Boot. Like, I think we've talked about this in the past. I would not want to live in the XML world that Spring was prior to what we've been dealing with, which is Spring Boot. Spring Boot is just glorious once you learn how it works. It is, it is a joy to use. Yep. Uh, you like how we just started talking about this after we got some news about uh, Pivotal? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, this is inside baseball, but uh, yeah, we might uh, might be worth oh, the. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. <laughs> uh, VMware <laughs> owns Pivotal. VMware owns Pivotal. And that, yeah. yeah. That's, he's he's doing more work VMware. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Okay. Anything happen. Well, this is awkward. Um, <laughs> Back to vampires. About- Okay. You want to just talk to us about your tip of the week then? (laughs) (laughs) It's got weird. Um, Leave it to Joe to make it weird. Yeah, I know. It's so late. It's like, geez, 10. Anyway, that's why. Um, So check this out. There's a new but non-open source uh, product from Grafana called OnCall that helps you manage production support. Uh, So... It looks almost, um, yeah, I got to compare it to like PagerDuty, which kind of manages like who gets the alerts, um, you know, what the schedule is, what it integrates with, how those alerts happen, all that sort of thing. Uh, but this is a new product that uh, is built off of and extends Grafana from the Grafana people. So if you're heavily invested in Grafana and you need to set up some sort of on-call schedule or you're starting to kind of dip into notifications and you're finding it is becoming a lot of toil to manage with those kind of um, production support issues, then this might be something you want to check out because Grafana is insanely popular. Uh, so I don't know if this product is going to uh, take off. I think it's only been out and really talked about for the last couple months. So, you know, who knows, may just be a flash in the, plan, the pan, but I'm really interested in it because it's such a popular product and so many people have it installed already. It kind of seems like a no brainer to just kind of, go with them to take it the extra mile and then you configure your alerts and who's getting them in your schedules, all that stuff in one spot because Grafana is the king of the hill right now in terms of, you know, if you're running your own kind of metrics and stuff. Uh, and so if you don't already have something like a data dog, whatever, if you're doing your own stuff, like it, it seems like a no brainer to me. Yeah. It does say though that it's based on the on call open source project. Okay, so there, so there's some sort of open core yeah, there, to it. There is there is an open source version of it, yeah. So, like yeah. you said, I mean, that's the okay. key is that like if you're running your own metrics, then you know this could be helpful if you're heavily into uh, Grafana. Yep. You know, if you're rolling, pricing's not terrible. It's is wait it's wait wait. It's not what? Not terrible. It's not terrible. That's right. <laughs> this, I mean, it says so. They've got a free plan, but then they've also like their pro plan is eight bucks a month per active user. Yeah, that's nice. So if you've if you've got three people that are on call, uh, that's not terrible. Or if you have a, a pager that you rotate around to people, you basically have one active user, right? Like it's it's yeah. not terrible. So it, 
Yeah, totally affordable. Yeah, pretty cool, man. Yeah. Not terrible. Not terrible. Uh, okay, so for my tip of the week, I'm actually going to steal this one from Angry Little Hamster asked uh, is part of their comment. They, they said, uh, it's understood that you should run with the lowest privilege possible, but no one really gives good a good way to go about it. Could you uh, give a... Could one of you have a discussion or give guidance on how to do this correctly? I think I missed the part though, where they were talking specifically about Docker. Yeah. Uh, if I remember the um, full question correctly. So um, there actually is in Docker, a user command where you can specify either a user by name or ID, as well as uh, you can specify the group that the user should be a part of either by name or ID. And in the um, Docker docu- Docker file documentation, they actually show an example of where you would you could first um, create the image off of a Windows Core server, and then cr- use a run statement to add a user, and then a subsequent user statement where you uh, switch to that user. And that user command will then instruct that everything from that point forward runs as that user. And if that's, you know, if, if you never changed anything else, then, uh, from that point forward, you know, as long, if you never changed users again from that point forward, then when the Docker image runs, it's going to run as that user or you're going to, you know, when inside of that command, inside of that container, things are running as that user. Wait, does this work for windows containers? They actually give a windows example. (laughs) They really yeah yeah i wonder how that's doing i I haven't looked at like a state of the state of the octaverse whatever type server in a while but i'm curious to see uh, how many people are running windows containers Uh, should let us know if you're running windows containers. i would imagine there's a lot because azure probably is yeah i'm so far i'm like removed from that ecosystem right now but uh yeah yeah interesting good stuff I, i i wish it well but <laughs> I, I've been like here of late, like really more like Alpine, all the things, I guess, like make it as small a core as possible and just add on what you need. You know, I don't know, but I guess that's what windows server core is doing too. The idea behind it is like, you know, as small a possible windows environment. Um, yep. But, but also too, it's like, why do you even need windows specifically like to run your.net? Like you could do that in Linux. You know, it's what we do. Yeah, nowadays um, you don't need it. Yeah. So uh, here's one other tip of the week, a really silly one. Do you remember the days of like when, uh, you know, you when you first got your iOS devices and you would connect it to iTunes by a wire? Crazy. <laughs> and, you know, that's when it would start this sync process. And you could like, it would show you a screen of all the, the pages that you had and you could rearrange the pages however you wanted. You know, like, oh, this screen of here's all my media apps. They should be like the first one. And here's all like you could rearrange all those things, right? Here's my reading apps. They'll be the the third page, you know, whatever. Like my single life before I got married. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was like the weekend for me. And and you thought it was a big deal when they like then you could sync to iTunes wirelessly and you could still do stuff like that. Right. Well, but then like eventually they kind of got rid of, you know, using iTunes to manage your your screens. And, and, and you're like, oh, I guess why well, I can't manage what screen is what anymore, like where those were. Turns out you still can. 
on iOS, there's like a bunch of little dots there at the bottom to like indicate what page you're on. And I remember like, you know, in a, one of the recent ones, they added in this ability where like you could like spread, you could slide over the dots real quickly to navigate between the screens. If you didn't know that, but if you just press and hold on those dots, you can rearrange the pages of your, of your icons. It'll take you into like that old school looking kind of view where it's like, nice. You could rearrange them all. Super I would love weird. to get excited about that, but it's, it's, I, I it's not, <laughs> but it's also, it was also like, it's not interesting and exciting, <laughs> but, but hear me out on this one. It was like, Hey, somebody might find that useful. And like, this is literally the tip of the week. So, Hey, don't be knocking on my tip of the week, man. No, no, that's totally fine. I mean, it's one step closer to Android, so it's You're only like nine million steps away. I don't. Well, <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. In fairness, I have no idea how long that's been there. It could have been there. For, it, maybe that feature's been there for a decade. I don't know. I just you know stumbled what? across it by accident, and I was like, "What the shut the front door? I am going to share that with people because that I sounds pretty it- neat." It's well-deserved because I can promise you where this is going to come in handy is somebody's going to accidentally have screwed up and dragged one of those dots over yeah. and be like, what, what happened? happened, right? So this is helping that person out. The anxiety levels will go down because of this tip. I can't hate it. I'm talking about vampires anyway, so. You know, <laughs> vampires. Yes. Interview with a dead man or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Something like that. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I need to I need to leave so I can go watch the latest episode of Top Secret Gun. <laughs> so, uh, you know, with that, if you haven't already subscribed to us, um, don't necessarily take all of Joe's advice, but uh, definitely subscribe to us. Uh, you can find some helpful links uh, at the top of the page for iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you like to find your podcast. And uh, you can leave us a review. We greatly appreciate it. Uh, it always does put a smile on our face when we read how uh, we've helped people throughout their career or in you know, during their career. And um, it, it really does mean a lot to us. Um, it's one of the little ways that you can give back uh, that, that really does matter to us. So uh, you can find some helpful links there at www.codingblocks.net slash review. Hey, and while you're at www.codyblocks.net, you can check out our show notes. Uh, uh, forget it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, oh, well, well played, sir. Well played. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, uh, make sure to follow us on uh, Twitter at CodingBlocks or uh, Web5 over at CodingBlocks.net, and you can find all our social delays at the top of the page. Uh, don't you need, like, a keyword? Like, what's the keyword? for the right. I got to get on the internet and I need a keyword to find it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, keyword coding blocks. <laughs>